Welcome to the New Books Network. And we are live. Welcome to NBN, Rena Rosner. Thank you so much for having me. What are you talking about? <laughs> I would almost jump out of the window here to have you on the show, except that I'm on the 34th floor. No, that would be a bad idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> but anyway, uh, everybody, folks, hi, this is Mel Rosenberg for the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I'm here with Rena Rosner, who is an amazing, I'm going to say young woman, uh, and a, uh, an author, successful children's author, and an agent. So, um, you know, Rena, you're probably the first author agent on the show, and you might be the first agent on the show. We have a lot to talk about. We have a lot so, to talk about. So let, let's start out with your with your splendid book uh, that came out the last year during the Corona era and called Light of the Midnight Stars. Let's talk about that one. Sure. You have it with you? Um, do I have? Am I supposed to hold it up? Oh no, um, I don't have. A oh, only only if you want people to buy right it right here. Um, I didn't come prepared. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll add a picture. We'll add a picture. Okay. <laughs> so tell us about it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, technically, um, my book was is published as adult. Um, but when I wrote both The Light and the Night Stars and uh, The Sisters of the Winter Road, which was my first book, I actually thought that I was writing. One second. Um, you also have a cookbook. And a cookbook. Yes. <laughs> I have to remind you. Um, my cookbook is called Eating the Bible that came out in 2014 uh, and actually is, was um, translated into five languages. So that's fun. Um, it was translated into five languages and eaten in 40 languages. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so when I wrote The Sisters of the Winter Wood, which was my first novel, I actually thought I was writing a, a book for teens, a young adult book, as we <laughs> say. Um, there's a lot of space right now. Again, I can't help my agent speak coming into the conversation. So there's a lot of books that are what we call crossover nowadays. And I think that sort of even though I knew that my second book was firmly going to be adult because it was under contract and I had a publishing house already, you know, it's published by Hachette, which is a, you know, one of the big five publishing houses uh, under the imprint in America, it's called Red Hook, which is sort of a sister imprint to Orbit, which is the science fiction and fantasy imprint. Um, and that's Orbit is what it's published um, in the UK. And so both of my books sort of sit on the on the fence between young adult and adult, um, mainly because the protagonists of both are teens, are teen girls. Um, both are historical. And in The Light of the Midnight Stars, I went quite further back in history than I did with my first book. My first book was set in 1903 um, in the town of Dubasari, which was the, one of the towns that my my uh, my mother's father's family came from. The Light of the Midnight Stars, I sort of uh, was exploring my father's side of the family a bit more uh, that had its roots in Romania. And it, my grandmother used to light Shabbat candles in a closet. My whole life, I thought that that was because she must have been of Spanish and Portuguese origin somehow related to the Inquisition, you know, and that I was going to do research and try to figure out how. And the more research I did, the more I realized that it was not leading me in the direction of Spain and Portugal at all, but rather in the direction of, of Hungary, 
um, Slovakia, Romania, and all the places where those, you know, all three countries sort of, you know, there were different borders that the areas we're talking about have been different countries at different times. And, and then the more research I did, the more I found out that actually, even though we associate Spain and Portugal with these customs, um, there are many, many Jews um, who have been forced to hide practices throughout history in so many different places around the world, um, from Mexico to Peru to Hungary to even Ukraine and Russia, right, in more recent history. Um, so many stories of uh, refuseniks and, and, you know, all of that, right? And so just because, just goes to show that just because you think you know your family history, you don't you don't know it until you start looking into it. And then, of course, as this is a story with every Jewish family, it gets really murky. And there's a certain point where you can only trace back as far as you can trace back. And um, one of the things that I try to do in, in all of my work, but specifically in, in The Light of the Midnight Stars and also in the book before, The Sisters of the Winter Wood, is to sort of give voice to the voices of Jewish women that have been lost to history. So much of history has been written by men. And so many women's voices have been lost either because they were unable to read, unable to write, not included. It wasn't something that was part, you know, that they felt was something that it's it's rare that we have a first person narrative from a woman literally from the last 500 years of our history, right? Even further back than that. So, um, so my novels are historical fiction, but they're also historical fantasy because I think to a certain degree, anytime you write fiction, it's fantasy. You're making you're making stuff up. You're making up people. And you can base it on as much history as you want, but at a certain point, you take a leap into the unknown, you know? And, and I think that that relates a lot to Judaism as well, right? Like we don't really know. We have traditions that have been passed down. We know certain things that have stayed the same. And, and the father in my story is based on a real historical figure, but is not, you know, I've taken my own liberties with, with the time and with exactly the place and, you know, but, um, and, and the father in my story is, is based on a rabbi who wrote this book called Sefer Hamin Hagim, which was one of the first codifications of customs, um, from that time. And it, it came about because there were many towns where the pogroms hit and, and the leader of the community would die. And the town had no leadership and they didn't know what to do. And this rabbi, um, uh, Rev. Isaac of Ternava, would, would travel from town to town. And he realized that there were towns that people literally didn't know, you know, what to say on certain holidays and how to pray and what to do. At Bar- and so he started to write things down. And so what was amazing to me when I started to read this Sefer Hamin Hagim from, which was written in like the 1400s, right? was how much it's identical to a, certainly a lot of Orthodox practice today. And I don't even mean, and a lot of, I'd say not, not just Orthodox practice. When you read what Torah portion on what week, and when you say Tachnun, or when you say Kaddish, or how you say, when you open the Ark and when you close the Ark, and, you know, stuff that's so commonplace, and it's just unbelievable that, you know, um, 700 years later, you know, 600 years later, we're still doing the same things, um, you know, so so that's that's the historical part. Right. And then there's the OK, but I've got to make up the stories of his wives and daughters because we don't we'll never we're never going to know those stories, you know, um, and even his story. We, we know what he wrote down, but we don't know anything about his personality. And, you know, anyway, so I think that there's a lot that is that is common. And it doesn't matter if you're writing adult fiction or young crossover fiction or or children's fiction. Right. Um, all of fiction is um, 
a flight of fancy. It is a, a, you know, a fantasy that we make up in our minds and put on the page. Um, Though my books do happen to have, also have fantasy, like cloud dragons and magic. (laughs) Cloud cloud dragons and magic are wonderful. So Serena, take us uh, back now to uh, little Rena Rosner uh, growing up. um, You grew up in the States in, in Florida somewhere. So my family, um, my mother's originally from Rochester, New York, and my dad's from Philadelphia. Um, but I was born in Miami Beach, Florida. My family moved to Israel when I was a baby. Um, so Israel was actually, it's the first thing I remember and the first thing I knew. We lived here for about five years. I'm, I'm in Israel now. Um, and then my grandfather took ill. So my father moved us all back. We didn't sell our house because he thought any minute now we're going back to Israel. And my grandfather lived for 19 more years. So I did grow up in Miami, but that wasn't the intention. I was actually born in Miami, spent my childhood in Israel, um, and then and then basically went to elementary, middle school, high school, and college in America. Um, little Rena <laughs> uh, loved books from a very young age and first started writing when she was eight. Wow. Um, what were you writing about when you were eight? My f- <laughs> The first story that I still have that I can trace is... I had this rabbit that I called Jenny LaHare, not a real rabbit. It was a stuffed rabbit. And it was a story about Jenny LaHare. <laughs> and I think I Jenny wrote it LaHare. in first grade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My sister had a best friend named Jen, Jen Levine, Jennifer Levine. And so I named my stuffed animal after her friend, but that was Jenny LaHare, not Jenny Levine. Um, it's uh, and, uh, if you, if you'd called her Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. You might have made a few bucks. Um, And uh, I've just been reading and writing for as long as I can remember. And at a certain point, it was like fifth or sixth grade that my teacher started to say, there's something here. There's something different. There's something unusual. Let's enter you into some contests. I've, I've, I've been, so my first book, The Sisters of the Winter Wood was written partly in prose and partly in verse. Um, The Light of the Midnight Stars, uh, is mostly prose but it has some verse one of the sisters as she sort of falls apart as the end of the novel she sort of falls apart into verse um so there's like a little bit of that in in the book uh so I was a poet first definitely um and and I started to kind of win contests for my poetry for my writing and it's really only because I had incredible teachers who supported me. Um, I went to a tiny Orthodox Jewish day school. I was pretty miserable in school for most of my educational career. Um, but I had people along the way who were touch points to me. And I, I, it's so I'm, I'm, su- I'm surprised that they encouraged you to write. Well, uh, for a long time, right, it was school. one day you'll write for Art Scroll in Feldheim. And I was like, no, <laughs> one day I will write for Harper Collins, but okay, you know. Um, and I always knew that, you know, as much as uh, I I grew up in an Orthodox community, my dreams were not Feldheim and Arts Girl. Um, <clears throat> but I know I had great English teachers, and my mom also found a mentor in the community um, who's a journalist who sort of took me under her wing, and. Um, I, we sort of did like a great books curriculum where I was kind of like, you know, let's just read books and talk about them. And so we started with classics and then worked our way up. And then we got to Dickens and I was like, she was like, which Dickens do you want to read? And I was like, all of them, you know, I was an unusual child. I didn't really do much. I didn't have a lot of friends. I just read books. My books, how, books how, were my old, how old were you? 
I was in high school. I must have been 13, 14 that I was like, I'm reading all of Dick, you know. And um, but then I also had another incredible teacher who who introduced me to Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and um, a lot of African-American poetry, um, Jamaica Kincaid and Entozake Shange, like all sorts of unbelievable um, feminist literature, you know, um, lesbian literature, uh, but African-American poetry and writings. And so that also really broadened my horizons. That teacher was fired after a year because that was not appropriate at an Orthodox Jewish day school. Um, but I've stayed in touch with her. You know, and um, so, so one second, Rina. Rina yeah, you got you got her fired. <laughs> I got her fired. No, I think her choice of curriculum. And that's something that's going on right now in the news, right in America, all the time. You know, these book bans and what should and shouldn't be taught in classrooms. And I think I'm like living proof of yeah. how you can broaden someone's horizons by introducing them to the right literature at a young age. So, so, so to paraphrase the song, uh, Rina, despite this exposure. To such a broad a, um, library, you still kept your religion. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Yeah. You know, I think that um, people who grow up religious, um, it's a spectrum. You're always on a spectrum, right? Like I've always been more and then less and then more and then less. And then, but the, the core has always been there. Um, you know, there's been times even like I cover my hair, but then there were times that I covered more and times that I covered less and times that I... And, um, and I think that that's really normal, you know, um, in college, I like, I still kept Shabbat, but I would like eat vegetarian out and then I didn't, and then I did, and then I didn't, you know, um, but yeah, but yeah, I'd never, never lost my religion. (laughs) It's something really important to me. It's really important in my books. I can't imagine writing a book that's not Jewish. Like that's just not, I don't think it's possible for me to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, and, and it feeds a lot into my agenting as well. I have um, a wide variety, a very diverse list of authors, and not all of my authors are Jewish, but most of them are, because that is the core. It's what I know. And it's what I know well. And, you know, it's what I feel passionate about. Even that though I- a- Agenting is super interesting, <laughs> but um, you're more interesting. Um, you studied at McGill. Well, I started Johns Hopkins was my undergrad, um, which I was lucky enough. I'm Canadian. So, you know, I'm always going to. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to Canada. (laughs) Um, So at Johns Hopkins, one of my teachers was Chaim Potok. I was really, really lucky. Um, Wow. Yeah. Just he died about two years after he was my teacher. So I was really lucky to have encountered him and lots of other amazing teachers. So, yeah, I lived in Baltimore for four years and did that. And my husband is Canadian. When my husband and I met on a plane ride to Vienna. It was not expecting. I was like least likely to get married, right? I was like, I, Rena's not gonna marry just she's 30. I was gonna move to New York City and work in publishing. I mean, I love Israel and Israel was always gonna be a part of my life somehow, but you know, that was the dream. And I met my husband on a plane. We dated long distance for a year and a half. And then it was kind of like, well, do we break up or do we get married? <laughs> so we got married. <laughs> Where is he from in Canada? Montreal. And we lived in Montreal for three years. So, and he was at McGill. So I, it's a whole complicated, I skipped my senior year of high school. And then in Montreal, they have like up until 11th grade. And then they have this thing, CJF, you're Canadian, you know, right? So I was sort of like finishing college and he hadn't started high um He hadn't started college yet because he took a year out to go study in yeshiva in Israel. 
So it was like weird because we're the same age, but I was like three years ahead of him in school, but only because I skipped my senior year. And, you know, so when he was doing his undergrad at McGill, I did my master's in history there. Yeah. And your, your, um, so your, your John Hopkins was majoring in what? Writing. And writing. Wonderful. Yeah. Wow. So you did, you, uh, you pressed all the, I was going to say you pressed all the levers or you clicked yeah. all the, bu- well, all the buttons. I have mixed metaphors here. When you, I was um, growing up, there weren't really that many places where you could do an MFA, like, right, it's a, a master of fine arts in writing, in creative writing. It was kind of like Johns Hopkins or Iowa. And I didn't want to go to Iowa as an Orthodox Jew. I mean, I, I had heard that there were a lot of like rabbis there because there are cows there and there's a lot of shrita, like that happens there, like, but that's not my community. You know, I knew Baltimore was obviously a better place to be as an Orthodox Jew. Um, so that's sort of why I chose Hopkins over Iowa. But now there's Columbia and this and that. Every school has a writing program. Like there's so many MFAs out there um, in writing. In my day, Hopkins was the, Hopkins and Iowa were the places to go. They still are. I mean, Iowa's bread loaf is still, you know, considered one of the best. And and I still maintain that Johns Hopkins has some of the best writing teachers that I've ever had. I had an incredible education. Um, but yeah, I knew I knew from a very young age that that's exactly what I wanted to study. It was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, the Asian thing came after the writing. One second, writing let's get there. So, so, yeah. so you, you came back to Israel. Uh, you have a basketball team of children. <laughs> we we moved to Israel. We moved back to Israel to my parents' home here that I'd grown up in, um, in two thousand and three. But my family had been here on and off. My sister was here, living here. My brother was living here. There's always been members of my family living in Israel, um, since nineteen eighty one. But is... you're you're an agent. You're a writer who writes in English for a predominantly, let's say, North American audience. Uh, you're an agent who tries to sell books in a predominantly North American scene, and you live in Jerusalem. I do, yes. <laughs> Does that hamper you a little bit? No, never. I'll tell you two things that are wonderful about where I'm located. Um, and I've, I've spoken to a lot of other agents, too, that there's something about living at the intersection of two cultures um, that makes you a better agent. And it was interesting. There was a, a the international, uh, Jerusalem International Book Fair happens every two years. And there's a, there's a big um, fellowship, um, the, they're called the Jerusalem Fellows that are editors and agents um, from all over the world come together. I was a fellow back in 2015. And um, it was a great panel. It happened in May. It hadn't happened since 2019 because of COVID. And it was back, we we're back to in-person just two months ago. And there was a great panel of, of all these different publishing professionals who sort of were born into a different culture and language, but lived in a, a different place, right? And now worked in a different culture and language than they'd grown up with. And one of the things that everybody said was was similar was to, you know, the, the thing that sort of the common denominator that, that sort of brought them all together was that when you don't belong anywhere, you're more likely to be able to sort of see all sides of things and um, have a wider, more diverse list. And because you're sort of, you don't belong anywhere. And that is sort of how I grew up. Like, yes, I sound American, but I've never really been American because I've lived my life between two countries and two cultures. And I'm not really Israeli. I'm never really going to be entirely Israeli either. Um, And so I'm sort of 
somewhere in between. Um, and, and that, I think that affects your writing. It affects my agenting. It affects everything. Uh, first of all, especially now in the last two, three years, it doesn't matter where you live. I mean, everybody's remote now. Right. But what the incredible thing about the Deborah Harris agency is the international scope. I'm so grateful and lucky that I'm a part of an agency not based in New York because, um, the Frankfurt book fair, the London book fair, the Bologna book fair, I go to every year. I have friends and connections at all different countries and cultures. Um, people come to Jerusalem for their international book fair. Uh, and so <clears throat> there's something more global. Also, just in the very nature of where Israel is located, we're at the footsteps of Europe. It's super easy to go there. Um, and and I'm grateful that, that the Deborah Harris Agency has sort of given me more of a global perspective on publishing. Um, and I think that that's like an added bonus, you know, that I bring to the table rather than just being an American agent based in New York. And that's all I know. Um, many New York agents go to Bologna and London or Frankfurt too, right? Um, but there's something about being sort of at the intersection of Asia, Africa, Europe, plus having an American angle that I think makes me more versatile and more likely to work with. I have two clients in Australia, right? Actually, a client in Ghana, a client in India. You know, like, I don't care where my clients are located. Um, the reason I sell to the U.S. directly is because I have, yes, I am American. I can speak the language. I know the culture, um, you know, but I also do a lot of work in the U.K. and I sell books all over, right, for translation. Um, and I love it. I love that sort of being able to do all of that, you know, um, and really? not be sort of pigeonholed into one language or culture. You tweeted recently, if I'm not mistaken, that you hate writing rejection letters. Oh, hate, hate. Aren't you in, aren't you in the wrong profession? I know. You know what? I think that, the, like you said, there's a uniqueness to being an agent and an author, though many agents are authors. Um, it's lonely because I don't have writing groups. It's weird, you know, when you're an agent because the other writers are always going to want you to like represent them or give them professional advice. So, so it's a bit of a lonely place to be, but at the same time, I think that it makes me more um, sensitive to what it's like to be a writer. And that's why I hate writing rejections because it's like, I, I don't, nobody likes to crush people's dreams. <laughs> like that's just not fun. Especially when so many queries I get actually are really, really good. Great. And, um, and it's really hard to say someone no, but obviously there's a limit to how much any agent can take on, right? Um, yeah, we're going to get there in a minute. So yeah. um, just uh, to be, uh, what's the word, forthright, um, you rejected one of my uh, picture yes, book yeah. manuscripts. You wrote me such a lovely rejection. <laughs> oh, man, great story. I'm sorry. Who's going to buy it? But happy holidays. <laughs> Uh, and uh, let, let, so let's get now to the, the nitty gritty of yeah. uh, being an agent. And then I'm going to ask you where you got your agent. Um, how many how many queries do you get a month? Uh, about 300, I would say. Okay. 300 so to 400. 300. Okay. So that's Could be about, 500. Depends yeah. on the month. So that's 4,000 a year. How many new writers, what you call clients, can you take on a year? It, that number is dwindling fast um, because yeah. what happens is you build a list and you hopefully nurture clients, careers, relationships, right? 
And so I'm kind of at a point that I don't need any more clients because my current clients are constantly writing books, right? And so those manuscripts come in and then I sell them. And then, so I don't really need to take on new, at the same time, um, one of the reasons I love being at the Deborah Harris Agency is we do feel we have a big mission sort of in the world to always be open to Jewish fiction and always be open to Israeli fiction. I've never, I think I close to queries maybe once for a month. I don't ever close to queries because there always has to be a voice for the Jewish world and a voice for Israeli authors out there in the world. We're not the only agency. Um, there are a few others in Israel, but we're certainly, I think, the most well-known, the most successful. And there's something about that, that it's important, I think, with rising anti-Semitism around the world, anti-Zionism, um, not to get political, <laughs> but I think it's important that there's- I, I, think, I think you should be in politics because you <laughs> haven't answered my question. Um, what was the question? <laughs> exactly. It, it's important to yeah. How how many uh, how many clients? authors do I take on? Exactly. I did take on two um, mm. this past month, but okay. there'll be months that I won't take on any. Right. So it really depends. I'd say a normal agent starting their list might take on let's say five to ten in a year. Someone like me, who I've been agenting for over ten years now, I really. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'll take on five in a year, but it may be, and maybe a little more. It really depends. I never want to not be in a place to take on new clients because it sort of ruins the fun of being an agent, the thrill of discovery, right? What keeps us reading queries is that you never know what you're going to find. And almost all of my clients have come to me from my inbox, from the slush pile, not through connections, not through you know, um, it's only in the last year or two, I would say that people have started to come to me through, oh, you know, I'm a published author. My agent left the business. So-and-so recommended you, you know, um, <clears throat> but I love reading the slush pile and I love discovering new talent and I love finding something that's so good that I just can't say no, you know, and I don't think that any agent like if, if you stop having that thrill of discovery, it's like it part of the job loses a little bit of the fun. And so why I hate sending rejection so much, because the, the other side of the coin is my favorite part of my job is saying to someone, I'd like to read the full manuscript or um, we have a deal, right? Like making people's dreams come true is the best part of my job, which is why I hate saying no all the time, too. Um so but yeah, you, you, so you, you do say no in the nicest way. Thank you, um, thank you. And so, to what extent um, do you look at the manuscript and say, "This is a really great manuscript, but there's no market for it"? How often does that happen? I'd say that the reason I take on books are twofold. One, sometimes there's something that's just undeniable. I love it. I love everything about it. I love the writing. I know exactly who to send it to. One of the ways I know that I'm going to take something on is when I'm reading it. In my head, I start thinking about what editors I want to send this to, right? Part of being an Asian is forging relationships with so many editors. Um, I go to New York normally twice a year. I make my rounds. I'm, you know, running all over Manhattan like a crazy person. That's sort of changed right now because like nobody in Manhattan's in their offices anymore. And I don't know what that's going to look like. But And, and everybody's crazy there. But I did go back in November, um, was my first time back. And instead of having meetings at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, 
I did like breakfast, lunch, dinner, <laughs> and I saw people, most of whom had to come into the city to see me because they'd all sort of not, nobody was in the offices yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but then there's also London and Bologna and Frankfurt, like the book fairs where I see people, also a lot of American agents, um, I mean, editors go there, also Asians, friends of mine who are, so, you know, relationships um, are really important. And, uh, and, and the other side of things is, um, is, is that I, I'm, I'm always looking for something that I love, even if I know I can't sell it. Sometimes I take something on. So sometimes I call an author and say, this is amazing. I know exactly who to send it to. Right. And the other side of the coin is I, sometimes I call someone and say, this is amazing. I have no idea if I can sell it, but I'm willing to try. Right. And that happens a lot. Um, there's a novel in verse, um, on the adult side of things that I took on recently that I said that to the author, this is amazing. I have no idea if we can sell this. If it was written for children, I could sell it in an instant. Right. Um, I have recently, one of the recent clients I took on, um, is a, a, a young adult Holocaust novel, which I've only ever done one other Holocaust novel. It's really hard to, you know, on the one hand, I'm always trying to sort of find books that aren't about the Holocaust because so many Jewish children go to libraries and the only Jewish books on the shelves are Holocaust books. Like we need to change that. And that's a really important mission for me. On the other hand, we can't stop having books about the Holocaust either because we don't ever want, you know, that to happen. It's important to always still have that and remember that. And so I'm really picky about if I'm going to do a Holocaust novel, it has to be amazing. And this one was amazing, but it was another one that I said to the author, I have no idea if I could sell this, but it's good enough. Let's try, you know. Um, so so I feel like those are the two usual um Sometimes, yeah, if I read something and I think it's amazing, but I'm like, I can't sell this, then I'll reject it. But but sometimes I'm willing to try, you know, and that's the, it's the challenge. Irina, a good agent like yourself, um, if you have 30 clients, uh, what is the success rate? What is your batting average in selling a book that you think is saleable? So I always say I sell about 75% of what I take on which I think is pretty good, you know? It's a great number. So mm -hmm. let, let's go over the numbers again. Uh, <laughs> the chance of sending you a manuscript and uh, becoming your client is about one in a thousand, which is like, uh, it's becoming in my interviews, the industry standard. I would say that out of every hundred queries I read, uh, maybe I'll ask to see about 10 of them. But out of every 10 full manuscripts I read, I don't even know if I'll offer on one. Maybe I'll offer on one, right? Like maybe. So yeah. Um, I usually have like mm, 30 to 40 full manuscripts on my Kindle at any one time um, because I have a very high request rate for full manuscripts. Like if I like something, if I like the first three pages, send me the full manuscript. I always want to read the full manuscript. But the question but, is, can you keep my attention for the whole book? And that's the harder part, right? Exactly. So so what is, what, what, Let's first of all go back to you. Uh, who is your agent? How did you find your agent? My agent is Brent Taylor. He's at Triada US. I've lost um, you. Oh. Come back, Rena. Who's Can your you agent? Can you hear me? Yes. My agent, agent is Brent Brent Taylor. He is oh. um he is uh he works at Triada US, the agency. Um he 
he's not my first agent. I had uh, a few different agents along my journey. My first agent was, uh, is not the agency closed and is not an agent anymore. And so that was for my cookbook. And so then I had to look for someone for fiction. They also were more mainly a nonfiction agency, but they sort of closed. My second agent also eventually left the business. And so I had to look for another agent. So yeah, it wasn't like, you know, I've had to move, move around for very, but I've also been trying to sell books as an author for at least 15 years or so. Right. So that's normal. I mean, I, I think it's more of a blessing and more unusual to have one agent for your entire career because stuff happens, you know? And then I had an agent for about five years who tried to sell um, a couple of different books that I'd written um, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And I sent um, that agent, the Sisters of the Winter Wood, and they didn't like it and they didn't think they could sell it. And I said, mm, I think it's time to move on, you know, like, and so my, yeah, my current agent, Brent, read the Sisters of the Winter Wood, loved it, sold it. And, and he's sold great. it to a, to a major publisher. Yeah. This isn't some little niche. Uh, no, dream, dream, uh, dream come true. <laughs> unbelievable. So uh, the more power to you. Um, and now I guess uh, your advice uh, to authors, aspiring authors. Um, we've already established the chances of getting published are teeny weeny. Uh, why should people write? And if they want to succeed, what do they need to do? Well, I think the most important thing is to not give up. It, but also to know what you want, right? I knew that I wanted to be traditionally published. I knew that I want to be published by either a major publisher or a small independent but respected publisher, right? The dream was traditional publishing. And so... If that's your dream, you have to know that it's just a long process. There's no shortcuts. And people are saying that now because of COVID, it's worse than ever before. I don't know. I've always had books that took a month to sell and books that took 24 months to sell, but I still sold them and I still sold them to a good house. I don't give up as an agent. That's definitely one of my trademarks. Um, but not every book I take on sells and even books that I think are amazing. It's, it's sort of a magic formula of like the right time, the right place the right editor like everything has to come together for a book to sell and nobody knows that magical formula and not even publishers right publishers can pay six-figure deals for books that don't end up earning out and they can pay much less for books that end up becoming national book award finalists right and nobody knows that magic formula not even harper collins right if they did you know they'd be a lot wealthier than they are um let, let, let me let me interject with a question you told me I could ask anything. Of course. Um, I think that agents don't make enough money. Can you make a lot of money being an agent? 15%. Can you make enough money? If you're successful at what you do, I mean, we're not like, there are agents. I, you know, there's always the like, the fabled seven figure deal, <laughs> right? <clears throat> no, but let's say, what, what, Rena, let's say you close a deal at uh, eight $8,000 and it earns out. That, that's, that sounds like an average deal. Mm, I mean, more, I'd say more that my deal's more. Um, Not yours, a general deal. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like in the place that I, at the, the level that I work, I'm looking to sell a book for $20,000 or more. Okay. Let's say you sell a book for $20,000. Uh, before tax, the agent gets $3,000. Mm -hmm. 
it's not what the Jews call a farmegan. Right, but it's, most it's not gonna, successful it's not agents... Gonna say, it's not going to send your kids to uh, John Hopkins and even McGill. Right, it's a combination of two things. One is royalties. The books that do well, right, you can make a lot of money in royalties um, year after year after year. And that's why also a lot of agents work and don't retire. Work You can work as an agent until your 80s, right? Like, because you're even if you don't sell any new books, you're still making royalties off the old books you sold, right? So you do need to have a couple success stories that keep you in business. <clears throat> they say it takes about five years for an agent to establish themselves. Um, but, you know, of course, every agent's different and you don't, there's no guarantee. Um, but if if you have a few six-figure deals a year, then that your numbers are suddenly a little different, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. it's a combination of royalties. And it, that's why it takes like five years to settle yourself as an agent, because you're not going to start earning royalties on most projects for at least three to five years from when they're published, right? Till you sell a book, till the book comes out, till the book earns out. It's it's a process. You can't become an agent in a year and expect to make money. Okay. Um, Rena, thousands, we, we're heading towards the uh, closing of our interview. Uh, otherwise, they're going to shut the lights on us. Uh, this has been remarkable. Um, so thousands of people are going to watch this and hear it on NBN. And uh, most of them are writers. Uh, so what are you looking for? Um, I mainly do. My, I'd say my bread and butter are middle grade and young adult novels. Um, but I also do adult. I, will, I always have and I always will. I love fantasy um, I love thrillers. I love horror in all spaces. Um, I also love, obviously, Jewish books. And I love poetry. I sold three adult poetry collections this year. That was really exciting. And That's it's also incredible. What's fun about being an agent where I'm at now is that once upon a time, I might not have taken on a poetry collection because they don't sell for a lot of money, even when you sell them to Penguin and to HarperCollins, which I have. Um, but now I'm in a place that I can do things that I love and not worry about the money. So I do poetry now because I love poetry and I don't care that it doesn't make me a lot of money. Um, but I think that's why a lot of agents won't take on poetry when they're younger in their careers, because it really doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of money. Um, so, but I do a lot of novels in verse in middle grade and young adult. I do picture books as well. Um, not as many, but I do definitely sell I'd say five to 10 picture books a year. So that's not nothing. Um, but I've definitely kind of based my career more on middle grade and young adult. I, I do select nonfiction projects. I sold an adult nonfiction project this year, which is the first one I've ever done. So here and there, I, I still do nonfiction. And, and obviously nonfiction, I sort of include the children's space is very different. Whether something's fiction, nonfiction, middle grade, young adult, like there's space for all of that in the children's space. Whereas the adult space tends to be a bit more like, it's, it's harder to break in. If you've never sold a nonfiction book as an agent and suddenly you want to try to sell one in the adult space, you don't necessarily have the connections. My agency does. And I think that that's what helped me. Um, and so maybe I'll be doing more of that, but it's not my expertise. Okay, this has been wonderful. So um, let's uh, summarize. Um, Rena Rosner uh, with three or four wonderful books out of your own. Uh, including the recent one called Light of the, the, Light of the Midnight Stars, Stars, which I don't have a copy of the show. But... Okay, with the imprints of Hachette. And um, 
I think you've had the remarkable careers wearing both of these hats. Um, and for those uh, authors uh, listening, um, I can tell you that Rina writes the most beautiful rejection letters. Um, and you have to persevere. And you have to stay with it. And you have to write books that are going to make the agent need you. Money. <laughs> need you. Stay away thinking, oh, who am I going to sell this to? Uh, Rina, this has been uh, remarkable. Thanks so much. Thank so, you for having um, me. Oh, are you kidding? I uh, I waited a long time. I know. Uh, you know, like like um, you're the you know people tell you no in your life, right? Um, you write, and ninety nine point something percent of the people are going to say no, but you say no in the nicest way. Aw, I had, I always tell people this. I, it took me 130 queries to get my first agent. So just because I'm an agent didn't make me immune to, you know, the, the, the nitty gritty of there's no, there's no shortcut to publishing, but I do believe that it's worthwhile in the end. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, I think that the shortcut is the long cut. <clears throat> and this is what I had to learn on my own flesh, um, the hard way by going to an SCBWI meeting in New York seven years ago and realizing what a mediocre writer I was. <laughs> um, uh, so um, this has been a great voyage. Thanks so much Thank for you. being on NBN. So this is Mel Rosenberg, your host of the Children's Literature Channel for the New Books Network. Yeah, I got it right this time. Rena Rosner, Uber agent and writer and author and wonderful lady. Thanks so much for being Thank on. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, dear. Bye-bye.